Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, which is worthy of proclamation in this room, in this city, and in this region, and across this world. God, you indeed are worthy of honor and praise, and we ask today that as we read from your word and as we hear it taught, that you would continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would give us soft hearts and open minds, that you would conform us into the likeness of your Son for the sake of our good and for your glory. Amen. Credibility and reputation. How good is yours? (laughs) I suppose that depends upon what you're trying to accomplish. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is trying to accomplish something of eternal significance as he is sharing the gospel and building up the faith of a group of people in Corinth, a group of people who struggle with a multitude of ongoing habitual sin, a group of people who have expressed one thing and then done another, a group of people who has great and and mighty needs, a group of people in many ways (laughs) are like us here today. And as he is trying to build up this group of people, it seems as if to do so, he needs to redeem his reputation. Some of the Corinthians are upset with Paul because he had planned to come and to visit them previously, but those plans had changed. And so, as is often the case, when things turn out to be unexpected, It's easy to import motive onto the one whose fault it is, to cast dispersion or blame in their direction. And those motives they claimed were ungodly. Others looked at Paul's life and the ongoing abuse that he had received through affliction, through beatings, through stoning, through imprisonment, and they thought, clearly we shouldn't be following the lead of this guy. He's so weak that his life around every corner has catastrophe attached to it. And so, Paul writes to them, he describes his motives, he seeks to strengthen his credibility, and he does so because he knows that the life of the messenger can either help or hinder the message itself. You know this to be true, the messenger and the message. There's a relationship there. You don't often take health advice from someone who's extremely unhealthy. You don't look to receive truth from somebody you know to be a liar. And you don't look for strength from someone who is so obviously weak. And yet, the lesson comes to these Corinthians. The secret to God's strength is actually found in Paul's weakness. And the same is true for you. And so follow with me as we read first, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. This is what Paul writes. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, 
but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand fully, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and to have you send me on the way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been Yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in him, it was always yes. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and the anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul begins the section in defense of his motives. His credibility and reputation are at stake and the attacks against him threaten to undermine the message that he's trying to deliver. And he says in verse 12 and verse 14, he writes of his boast. Verse 12, he boasts in his motives and behavior of simplicity and sincerity. And the second boast in verse 14 is he expressed hope that the Corinthians will boast in Paul and Timothy and Silvanus and that he will boast in them, a mutual boast, on the day of the coming of the Lord. And it's interesting that Paul should speak about boasting in such terms because when most of us think about boasting, there is a distastefulness that occurs, isn't there? Nobody really likes people who boast because arrogance and vanity are the things that often define them. Perhaps you've heard the story of the frog who wanted to fly. There was a frog once upon a time who lived in the north and he wanted to go south for the winter as the swans did. 
And each year the frog watched as the swans flew south while he shivered in the snow and cold and he got an idea. He went to the swans and he asked them, can I go with you? And of course they responded, you can't fly. You're a frog. I know, said the frog, but I have a wonderful idea. Let me, let me get a stick and if two of you will help me, I can go with you. Two of you could keep the ends of the stick in your beaks as you fly and I could hang on by my hands and my mouth as you flew. And then, finally, I could escape this miserable cold weather. Two swan friends agreed to help the frog out and it worked beautifully for many miles. However, as they were flying low over the fields of North Carolina, a farmer looked up and he shouted to his friend as he saw the two swans holding the stick and the frog hanging on in the middle, look at that! That is amazing! I wonder who came up with that idea. The frog, quite proud of his idea, opened his mouth to tell the farmer. And that's when he fell to his death. Boasting in ourselves is the first step to spiritual death. And throughout the New Testament, Paul has been very careful to warn against boasting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 129, especially to these Corinthians who are prideful in their way, he says that no one may boast in the presence of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3.21, he warns them not to boast in their leaders or in other men. 1 Corinthians 9.15 and 16, he says that no one has grounds for boasting because of the gospel. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 3 through 8, Paul gives this list of his status and his accomplishments and the things that the Lord has allowed to happen to him and through him, things that you would typically say are grounds for boasting. And he proclaims that he considers them to be rubbish in comparison with knowing the Lord Jesus. So why then does he now speak about boasting? This is a fragile situation. He desires to boast and reclaim his reputation for the sake of the gospel. And on the flip side, he does not want to become distasteful or off-putting. And so here, the success for his boast lies on the grounds for what that boasting actually is. And the boast is not in and of himself. The boast is rooted in the Lord Jesus. In fact, there are a few places in this letter where he partially quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Listen to what it says. In the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, 
justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. Paul boasts in what God is doing through the message as it's declared in a certain way. And he longs to boast for what God will do in these people as it will be revealed on the last day. What a great goal for life you see in verse 12. The part of this boast when he says this. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. What a great goal for your behavior and your motives. In a world that is ever growing in complexity, in a public arena that is ever filled with insincerity, for you to be a person who functions in simplicity and godly sincerity. I wonder if you might be able to say that about yourself. I mean, it seems obvious, right, that we should be able to be sincere people. It seems obvious. And yet all around us there is insincerity and hypocrisy. I think of the Sunday morning when two men were out on their boat fishing and after a miserable morning catching no fish, one of the men says to his friends, you know, we probably should have stayed home and gone to church this morning. The other man said to him, well, I could have stayed home, but I couldn't have gone to church. Well, why not, says the first man. Well, my wife is sick, the second man says. Insincerity. Saying one thing and doing another thing. I can go fishing, but I can't go to church. I can do this with my money, but I can't do that with my money. I can say this about somebody, but I won't actually do it with them or for them. You know, sincerity literally means examined in the light of day. There is no room for duplicity or hypocrisy. Paul is not concerned about glorifying himself. He's concerned that if they misunderstand him, then they will misunderstand the glorious gospel that he preaches. If they can't understand that the weakness of, uh, that the, weakness of the prophet or the apostle that in his weakness that God shows his mighty power in the midst of that weakness, how could they possibly understand that the weakness that Jesus displays on the cross in his death is actually the greatest sign of the power of God to save sinners? And if you don't understand, friend, if you do not understand how weak you are because of your sin, then how could you possibly understand and receive God's power to forgive you of that sin and thus be saved? Paul wants them to understand weakness and power, sin and grace, the gospel, and what the boast is. And so, 
Why can he boast in Jesus in such a way that motivates his actions? Why can we boast? Why can you boast in Jesus? And how does God engage you in a similar type of boast? Well, verses 15 through 22 point to this promise of God. Paul had changed his plans in going to visit them. Instead, he was going to come sooner. He decided to write a letter, a letter that was rather sharp in its tone. And this caused them to question this very sincerity that he is now defending. And he defends it further, look at verse 17 with me, by asking two hypothetical questions. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? The yes, yes, and the no, no, those are the words of an insincere flatterer. Those are the words of a man whose wife is homesick, but he can fish but not go to church. Those are the waffling words of insincerity. But Paul doesn't function like someone who speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Instead, he shifts the gears and he reminds them of what a wonderful truth about Jesus is and how to function, how you function, how I function in light of his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to it in verse 20. And if you are somebody who underlines your Bible, this is something for you to highlight. It says this. For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Friends, the only way for you, for me, for the Corinthians to, ex to experience a yes from God is through the Lord Jesus. Everybody wants a yes from God. Everybody wants the favor of God. Everybody wants God's benevolent hand upon them. The only way that you can receive that yes from God is through the Lord Jesus. And the only way you can respond to God with a yes is through the Lord Jesus. God's yes for your life is not just a yes for today and a no for tomorrow. Paul says a yes for today and a no for tomorrow is the words of a flatterer. That is the way of the modern politician. Yes today, no tomorrow. With Jesus, it is yes, period, forever. All of the promises of God for you, for your hope, for your joy, for God's presence, for sonship, for you to be an heir, for you to experience eternal bliss, for you to have contemporary comfort, for you to have ongoing blessing. All of those promises are found in Jesus. This is why we proclaim the forgiveness of sins for Jesus and Jesus alone that he gives us. This is why we proclaim it on the highways and the byways and the airways. This is why we share it with people who are at work or who are in extended families, even though it's not polite to talk about politics or religion around the table at Thanksgiving. We do it anyway because God's yes is found in him. This is why we teach it to our kids even though it might make them unpopular or might hinder their success in the eyes of the world, we would rather have godly janitors than 
pagan doctors. Not that all doctors are pagans or janitors are godly, but you get my point. The promises of God find their yes in him. Philip Hughes gives this great description of this reality. He says this, he says, in Christ is the yes, the grand consummation affirmative to all of God's promises. He is the horn of salvation raised up for us by God, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. His covenant promises addressed to Abraham and his seed are realized in his single person. To the believer, therefore, Christ is all, not merely as fulfilling a word of the past, but as himself being the very living word of God, faithful and eternal. In him, all fullness dwells. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption are found in him alone. There is nothing with which is not in him who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus is God's yes to you. And he is your yes to God. Jesus is God's yes to you. And he is your yes to God. And in verses 21 and 22, Paul gives us the immediate security that comes with a yes from God. Look at it with me. He says this. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There's a lot of words there. Established, anointed, sealed. To be established is the picture of immediate security. It is a firm foundation, a reality that though might feel as if it's changing around you has a clear and steady path. Never to be undone through the winds and the waves of life. To be anointed is the picture of royalty. Anointing is a physical action of the Old Testament, typically with oil, that symbolizes the setting aside of a person for a specific act of God. Anointing was something that was done to kings. Prophets were anointed. You are anointed. You are royalty to God, co-heirs with his son Jesus. God has a very special purpose for you and that purpose is expressed that even though you have incredible weakness because of your sin, God displays his glory and his power through your life because of his son. You're anointed. To be sealed is a sign of ownership. You can think of a melted wax seal on a piece of correspondence that indicates who the letter is from. You can think of an embossed seal that a king or a government official would use to lay claim to a title or to a deed. God places his seal on you. You belong to God 
through your faith in Jesus. The benevolent, loving, all-powerful king of the universe places his claim over your life, which means that Satan or any other power has no claim over your life. You are sealed. And the way that God makes this seal upon you evident and clear is by sending his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. God with us, Emmanuel, the Lord Jesus. God in us by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the implications for you in this are wonderfully profound. This means if you are uh, established and anointed and sealed and God gives his spirit to you, this means that your relationship with God is guaranteed. It's not yes, yes, and no, no. It's yes, period, forever. God doesn't give his spirit to indwell you only to take it back at some other time. Guaranteed. This means that you are given part of a greater whole as the spirit is the first part of your redemption which will be followed by the eternal presence of God. The sealing of the spirit comes with no strings attached. That's a wonderful implication for you. The spirit will empower you to every way and every deed that you need to serve God with your life until the day of your death and then the Spirit will usher you into glory. No strings attached. Surely by the grace of God because of the Lord Jesus Christ through your faith in him. That's why Paul says that Jesus is God's yes to you and he is your yes to God. And so what does that mean for how we work today? Well, in verse 23 to the end of the passage, Paul revisits the situation about his reputation again, his credibility. Now that he's talked about the message and how glorious it is, he goes back to the messenger and why he did not come to see them. And in verse 24, he tells us, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. This is the description of ministry to Christians. Working with you for your joy. This is Paul's ministry to those who believed in Corinth. This is our ministry at Old North to you. Working with you for your joy. Paul explains that he didn't come to them again because he wrote this letter of direct rebuke and his motive was not vacillating or cowardice, but his true motivation was to be merciful, not to inflict further pain, but rather through his writing he pointed them to Christ because of his incredible love for them. And all of this was for the sake of their joy. 
working with them for joy. You know, there's a lot we could say about what that means for the life of a local church with the opportunities to serve or to be involved or to invest in each other. The things that God calls us to do that we get to do together, that we work together for joy. And in the middle of that, we see that Jesus is God's yes to us. His promises are fulfilled to us and our response to God is a yes to Jesus. Jill Briscoe describes what happens when we pursue something else other than Jesus for our joy. But at the same time, we still expect joy that comes from God. She writes this. She says, I remember talking to a girl in our church two or three years ago, and she said, Jill, I've lost my joy. I've lost my peace. I want it back. Well, where did you lose it? I asked. Well, that has nothing to do with this, she replied. Help me get it back. But where did you lose it? She asked again. I don't want to talk about it, the girl replied. But eventually, she did talk about it. She lost it when she moved in with her boyfriend. That'll do it. And that'll do it because if, as all of us struggle through life, if we give in and if we pursue the sinful or fleshly desire that we have, while seeking at the very same time to live under the banner of God, you will not experience God's yes <laughs> that only comes through Jesus. And that results in your joy. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, we are worshiping, what we are worshiping is what we are becoming. In other words, our deities or our focus or our affections shape our identities. Let's call it Emerson's Law, as it's often referred as. And let's apply Emerson's Law to the lives of two men. The evolutionary scientist Charles Darwin once wrote in his autobiography, my chief enjoyment and sole employment throughout life has been scientific work. From this work, he added, I'm never idle, and it is the only thing which makes life endurable for me. What effect did devoting himself to scientific work have on the person that Darwin became? Well, he would go on to write that up to the age of 30, poetry gave me great pleasure, and I took intense delight in Shakespeare. But now, for many years, I found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of a large collection of facts. This loss is a loss of happiness. I became a withered leaf for every subject except science. Friends, there are no promises of God applied here. <laughs> There's no recognition of God's yes in Jesus and no response of yes to faith in Jesus. And by 
Darwin's own admission, there is no joy, there is no happiness, only a withered leaf remains. Now consider Emerson's law at work in the life of another influential genius, a man named Jonathan Edwards, who at the age of 19 wrote, resolved to cast my soul on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust and confide in him and concentrate myself wholly to him. Later in his life, Edwards reflected on how the object of worship affected his soul over many years, and he said, it brought an inexpressible purity, brightness, peacefulness, and ravishment to the soul. In other words, it made the soul like a field or a garden. Two gifted men. One became a withered leaf. The other became a garden. The object of their ultimate devotion shaped the very kind of men the two became. A withered leaf or a garden? Which one will you be? Jesus is God's yes to you. And he is your yes to God. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are some in our midst today who are struggling to give a yes to the Lord Jesus and thus receive a yes from you. I pray now in this moment that you would touch hearts and minds by the power of your spirit, that we would be a people, all of us who surrender to you, that we seek the forgiveness that you give, that you would display your blessings and promises upon us because of your son. And we know that that requires of us a step of faith, faith in him. Lord, I know that there are some among us today who desire the blessings and the promises of God and yet are saying yes to all kinds of other sinful desires other than Jesus. I pray today that you would call them back to yourself, that today would be the day we turn away from that which hinders our joy and turn to you who gives us ultimate joy. I pray today, God, for all of us who live in this world in such a fashion that we need to live in simplicity and godly sincerity, that the fact that we are established and anointed and sealed should be the motivating desires of our life. Strengthen us in this all the more we ask. Give us greater resolve, greater affection. Help us to worship you with even greater vigor. Help us to arrange our patterns and habits and lives in such a way that reflect this great glory and give us great joy, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.